So this year, 2024, marks 50 years uh, since my island where I was born and grew up, Cyprus, uh, was split into two uh, with a military line east to west. And now in the north, we have Turkish Cypriots, and in the south, we have Greek Cypriots. And they, what is supposed to be together and one island is now for 50 years been separate and two separate communities. And it's deeply painful, and this year is the 50th uh, year since that happened. And um, we are going to read uh, this passage of Scripture, which talks about um, the end of this story that we've been looking at in terms of the presence of God. Uh, when God made everything, heaven and earth, the presence of God and people were supposed to be together, but all the way through history, they've been separated. Uh, there was this great divorce, as we've seen. And yet, at the end of the story, there is this final healing, reconciliation, coming together of all things. And that's what we're going to look at today. And so, Revelation 21, verses 1 to 6, uh, let's read the Word of God. Let me read to you. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, See, the home of God is among mortals, among people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people's. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more. And mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I'm making all things new. He also said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then he said to me, it is done. It's done. It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Uh, let's just pray, and then we're going to look at these verses. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you so much for your great presence with us as we worship and as we look at your word, the sense of peace that we feel, the sense of healing that we know. And yet, Lord, we know even this is just a drop in the bucket compared to that great sense of arrival, of well-being, of well done, of rest that we will one day know. And so we pray today that as we look at your word, that this glimpse that we're given, that this taste that we're given, would remain with us. That you would um, make us a people who are oriented towards that great future. And just give us some real tangible things to hold on to as we hope, oh God. In Jesus' name, amen. It is a weird one talking about heaven. I realize I've been in Christian ministry for 20 years, and I've probably 
only pre- this is the second time I've preached on this passage. So to me, I've been going this week, oh, wow, we should talk about heaven more, right? Um, uh, so in terms of the, the kind of story that we've looked at this term, uh, for some reason, when we were in our creative planning, we decided that the presence of God should be purple. Um, that's just, I, I think maybe the curtains in the tabernacle were purple or something. So our color has been purple. So this, if you like, is, this is heaven. This is the presence of God, okay? And then this is earth. This is where people live. Now, when God created everything right at the beginning, first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So heaven and earth were created together and were supposed to be together. So there was supposed to be this great overlap. Right at the beginning, everything on earth was filled with heaven. God who lives in heaven, and people who lived on earth were together in the Garden of Eden. There was a, if you like, it was kind of like this, completely layered onto each other. The presence of God and the presence of people completely together. Yeah, that's, that was what, how it was supposed to be. That's how it was in the beginning. It's like the pizza and the cheese. And now I'm distracted because I'm just thinking about a pizza this size. Hallelujah. <laughs> that's heaven right there. Um, and then what happened, the great... The great divorce, the great separation, the, the entering of sin into the world, the listening to the snake, the eating the fruit, and Adam and Eve uh, were thrown out of the presence of God. And so what was supposed to be together became separated. What was supposed to be conjoined, the presence of God with people, became completely separated. And ever since then, all the way through the Bible, whenever we read about heaven and earth, we read about them as separate. We read things like, you are God in heaven, and here am I on earth. We read things like, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down to earth. We read things like Jesus teaching his disciples to pray. When you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So all the way through the Bible now, there's a separation of what's supposed to be together. The great divorce the presence of God separate from the people of God. But then God, as he's always done, he had, he had this, this plan, this scheme. He said, I am going to start to bring my presence to people. And so we had these little points of overlap, like the tabernacle, in the, like the tent of meeting, like the temple in Jerusalem, which was a place that you could go to and encounter the presence of God. So you've got the fullness of God, his presence, his goodness, dwelling in this little tent or this little building. It was a little point of overlap. You see that? Am I overlapping it enough? My arms are going to start getting tired soon. And then if you wanted to meet with God, you could go to that place. All the mathematicians in the room are going, oh, I love a Venn diagram. (laughs) If you wanted to meet with God, you could go to that place and meet with him. But it was limited. It was limited in terms of a small place. It was limited in terms of access. It was limited in terms of who could go and where it was. And so you have the beginnings of the presence of God in the world, but it's limited, yeah? Make sense so far? And then we have the sending of Jesus. And with the sending of Jesus, what you have is you have one who has the fullness of God in him, 
coming from heaven and coming into earth. And so wherever Jesus goes in the world, the presence of God is going there. And Jesus moved around and he healed people and he forgave people and he touched people. And he was representing the fullness of heaven. All of, all of the glory of God dwelling, squeezed into one person. That's Jesus, fully human, fully divine, from earth and from heaven. He was like a, a portal. When you touch him in earth, you're actually touching God. When you see him, you're actually seeing God. When he talks to you, God is talking to you, yeah? And so Jesus was moving around in the world. And then after we killed Jesus, because we wanted to be separate, <laughs> After we killed Jesus and got rid of him, he sent the gift of the Holy Spirit to fill his people in the church. God never gives up. He's like, you will have my presence. Right? And so now, wherever the people of God are in the world and through history, they're filled with the presence of God. They're a little outpost of heaven. They're an embassy. They're a, they're a place of his presence. And so you start churches in new places all over the world. And you're bringing the presence of God into those new countries, into those new places, into those new generations. And so we begin to fill the world with his presence. You understand? Square churches in a round world. And so what we get to in this final point, in this final moment in the story, this vision that we're looking at today, is the final bringing together of what never should have been separated. The, the renewed heavens and the renewed earth, the, the reuniting of what had been broken. And so we're going to come to this great moment where we see heaven and earth once more together. Heaven coming down to earth. The presence of God coming down to be amongst people forever. The way it was always supposed to be. The cheese back on the pizza. Hallelujah. Mo, you're wearing the color of heaven today. There you go. God bless you. You should be like up here doing a dance about heaven or something. And so this is the moment that we come to. This great ending. This great reunification, this great bringing together of God and his people, as he'd always purposed all the way through history. Understand? And so we're looking at these verses from the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation is written by John, who's one of Jesus' disciples. When he's writing Revelation, all his friends have been killed for their faith. All the other disciples have been murdered because of their testimony about Jesus. He's the only one left of the original disciples. And they tried to kill John. They tortured him. They boiled him alive in oil. And he survived. He's a tough old goat. And so now they've exiled him. The Roman authorities have exiled him to the island of Patmos, which is really mean, because John loves the churches that he's been serving on the coast of Turkey, Ephesus and Smyrna and, you know, the seven churches of Revelation. He loves those churches. From Patmos, you can see them. You can see the mainland. But he can't get there because he's on this island. And so here he is on his own as an old man 
And God is revealing to him things that are to come. And he writes them down in this book that we call Revelation. And these are the verses that we've read. So we're going to go through them verse by verse and just try and think about what is this glimpse that God is wanting to show us. So verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So when it talks about a new heaven and a new earth, does that mean like God's given up on plan A, everything that he made originally and just got rid of it and done something totally new? Is this plan B now? Well, no, because just, I promise we won't do lots of Greek today, but there's in Greek, there are two words for new. And one means brand new, like a brand new car that's just come out of the factory or a brand new baby that's just been born. But the other, which in English we just translate as new, means a bit more renewed, repurposed, upgraded, upcycled. And that's this word. And that's important. Okay? And so what we're saying is, there's an upgraded heaven and earth. There's a restored heaven and earth. Everything broken and nasty has been taken out, but what's left is good as God originally intended. And so, but what we see is this new heaven and new earth, renewed heaven and earth, together again as they were always supposed to be. What we don't have is heaven is the perfect place to which we will one day escape and earth is the shabby place from which we will one day escape. This idea of escaping from earth up into heaven, defying gravity, sitting on a cloud, playing a harp. Really glad it's not true. I don't play the harp. Clouds weird me out a little bit. And um, that's not the direction of travel. The whole direction of travel in these verses is a, is a coming down. Heaven coming down to earth. And so, uh, God's two-level world will be renewed in both of its elements. I want to say the pizza and the cheese, because now that's in my head, and that's going to be the illustration that you remember today. But no one wants a pizza with no cheese, and no one wants an earth with no heaven, and no one wants to live without the presence of God. And so, there is this great reunification. It's like Heaven and earth were Siamese twins. They were born conjoined. They were supposed to be together, but they've been separated. In this moment, there's a great reuniting, a great rejoining, a great healing of the rift, of the separateness between God and people. And it says the sea was no more. Now, what does that mean? Because personally, most of the planet is ocean, so what would it be like to have a planet with no ocean on it? That would be weird. And also, I really like the sea. It's one of my favorite things is swimming in the sea or watching a sunset over the sea. So if there's not going to be any sea in heaven, I'm not sure about that, right? Well, this is where this is a symbolic language thing, the sea being no more. For, for the Jews, they were really scared of the sea. They, the sea was where monsters come from. Jews weren't seafaring people like Greeks. They didn't like boats. Um, and so the sea was scary. It's chaos. Solid ground is safe. Sea is scary. So th what it means is there'll be no more scary. Also, the sea was where enemies came from. Whenever the Jews got invaded, it was ships coming over the sea. And so no more sea means no more enemies. Also, um, 
for John, the sea is separating him from his beloved churches. So no more sea means no more separation. And so when it says the sea is no more, it's saying there's no more evil, there's no more monsters, there's no more enemies, there's no more chaos, there's no more fear, there's no more separation. Amen? Um, and when we get to verse 4 and it talks about there's no longer any death or crying or mourning and pain, it's the same language as this verse. It's kind of expanding and expounding verse 1 in verse 4. So that's verse 1. Verse 2, and I saw, so he's, he's seen something, the heavens and the earth. Now he sees something else and then he starts hearing things. Okay, so this is the second seeing. I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So what did he see? He saw a city coming out of heaven. Why is that good news? Like, not being funny, all his friends have been killed for this. Why, why would you be killed for a city coming out of heaven? What, what is happening here? Well, a city is an interlocked system of relationships and people and structures of power. Often in cities, we see at close quarters the very best and the very worst of human relationships and interactions at close proximity. So in cities, you get the very best of human creativity. Like when people come together and you get good stuff coming out of that togetherness. In cities, you get the very best of arts and music and creativity, and invention, and things like hospitals, and universities, and solidarity to stand together against justice and injustice and change the way things are in the world. So you get the very best of humanity thrust together in close proximity, understand? But also in a city, you get the very worst of when people live closely together. Cities have the greatest discrepancies between the obscenely rich and the abject poor, and usually the obscenely rich are rich at the expense of the abject poor. And so cities can be built on systemic injustice, oppression, slavery, abuse. They can be centers of every variety of evil. They're often founded on a structural evil. Okay? So now Jerusalem, the queen of cities, had both. She was the symbol of longing, the focus of desire, the place where the temple was, for the Jews, for the Jews, Jerusalem was right in the center of the world. They called it the belly button of the world, okay? And because they believed that there was a, uh, a connection between heaven and earth through the temple in Jerusalem that was a bit like an umbilical cord. And so actually, if you went to Jerusalem on pilgrimage or went there to pray, then somehow you were accessing heaven through the divine umbilical cord. And so for Jews, Jerusalem was this, this very best of places, this place of longing, this place that centered the presence of God. But also, she was like every city, full of intrigue, full of politics, full of injustice. The temple system cheated the poor. Um, it excluded the most vulnerable. Priests grew obscenely rich. Corruption was rife. Uh, in fact, you became high priest by uh, kind of bidding to the highest bidder. They'd have like an auction and the person with the most money could become the priest. That's what Jerusalem had become. And Jerusalem in AD 70 was totally destroyed by the Romans, wiped off the map, absolutely disappeared. There is no more city. When John is writing this, Jerusalem does not exist anymore. 
It's been burned. It's been wiped off the map. The Romans have taken it out completely. And so to see the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, John is seeing a new society, a restoration of perfect society, connection between God and people, but also between people with each other. Everything that is wholesome and wonderful about human interaction without everything that is dark and malicious and unjust. Can you imagine a perfect human society? Just come to my house on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> not. Um, David De Silva says this. John is not so much talking about a place. In this vision, the Jerusalem, he's not so much talking about a place. There's not bricks coming out of heaven. He's talking about a community, rather like our concept when we say that wherever our family is, there is home. John is suggesting that community creates a place rather than the reverse. Do you see? So he's seeing God's perfect society coming out of heaven. And there's also a sense in which the New Jerusalem is a fulfillment of the story of the church. As we've seen, as we saw last week when Joel spoke, you know, the church it's the people of God. It's the city of God. It is the, the new Jerusalem. So many Old Testament prophecies about Jerusalem are fulfilled in the church, right? And so the church is the place where God dwells, the place where people come to meet God. If there is an umbilical cord from heaven now, it's through the church, not through the physical city of Jerusalem. And so we see this, this picture, and you've got to think to yourself, well, it's weird because... I thought the church was on earth waiting for Jesus to come back. So in this picture, why is the church in heaven coming out of heaven? And I think we have to remember that, yes, there will be, when Jesus comes back, when, when all things end, yes, there will still be people, his people, waiting on earth for him. If he came today, if this scripture was fulfilled today, um, there'd be two billion, there's two billion Christians on earth. Yeah, most of them are in Africa. You know that. You know that. In Africa, there are 1.2 billion people, of which 600 million are Christians, so one in two. You meet two Africans, one is a Christian. It's amazing, right? Uh, so if Jesus came today, that's what it would look like. But what we have to remember is there are many, 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 many more who have already gone to heaven, who are already there. Many from across the generations, many from around the world, for 2,000 years worth of believers stored up in heaven. So there is a lot of church in heaven. Right? And so then we see this thing prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so we see this picture of the, the people of God, the city of God at the end of time, looking like a bride on her wedding day. And what, do, what does that picture evoke in us? What does that say to us? Well, um, it includes the ideas of love, because wedding days have love. So it's the answer to the, the black-eyed peas question. Where is the love? You know, there's the love between God and his people on that day. It's, it, it evokes this sense of waiting and preparation and anticipation, like a bride who's been waiting for her wedding day, waiting for that day. And so it's the fulfillment of all longing. It evokes this idea of a secure covenant relationship, Jesus will take his bride to himself forever. He'll be the perfect husband. And um, it evokes this idea of a society. There's beauty in it. You know, a bride on her wedding day. And the word here is adorned. 
but a bride on her wedding day, she's wearing a beautiful dress, she spent a lot of time getting her nails done and her hair done and her makeup done, and she is you know, maybe the most beautiful she's ever going to be, right, on that day. That's why we keep the photos in our house, to remind us. I was once that beautiful. And, um, <laughs> and so there is this idea of a society that is beautiful and radiant. Um, and so all of these ideas are in this picture of the bride and the, the great wedding. And so heaven is, is not so much a new world up there, it's a new world down here. It's a great wedding moment. It's a great healing moment. It's a great arriving moment down here. And it says this is the holy city. It uses this word holy. And today in the worship, we've been reflecting on holiness. And again, a holy city, it takes it much beyond the personal, beyond just gazing at your own heart. It's, it's about a systemic holiness rather than a systemic injustice. It's, it's holy relationships. It's, it's a human society with all the good and none of the bad. Can you imagine? Um, and so it's fascinating because we work to build Jerusalem in a sense down here. We're praying your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We're serving and witnessing and loving our town. We're looking to bring the kingdom of God in Reading and beyond. But with all of that, in the end, our efforts are quite small because the perfected city actually comes out of heaven. In God's sovereign time, in God's sovereign way, everything is done and completed and down it comes. Amen? Can everyone just do this with their hands? There you go. Oh, that was beautiful. That, oh, that actually quite moved me. Um, do it again. Do it again. That's beautiful. And so, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, and they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and be his God. And as we've seen all the way through this series, this word dwell is really important. It's actually the word tent or tabernacle. And so just as God dwelt with his people in the desert in a tent, and just as Jesus came, the word became flesh and tabernacle dwelt among us. So in the same way, now we have God dwelling with his people. And so what God did in Jesus, the, the coming down and dwelling amongst people, the incarnation, is actually a taste of what God will finally do, the coming down and the dwelling amongst his people. And um, it's not the dwelling of people with God, it's the dwelling of God with people. And so again, there's this direction, there's this dynamic. And um, we were camping together in Eden, us and God, but we moved our tent away. And then he followed us, and we moved our tent away. And then he sent Jesus, and we moved our tent away, and in the end, he comes. It's a lot like uh, my dog at home, Jasper, who, you know, he's a lap dog, so it's not his fault. He has been bred for thousands of generations to want to sit on people's laps. That is his breeding. That's his DNA. That's what he wants to do. And so I'll be sitting on my chair, and he'll come and sit on me. And I'll be like, I don't want you to sit on me. You're, like, you're going to put hair on me and you smell and I want to be on my own. So I'll move and then Jasper will come and sit on me. And then I'll move. And, and in the end, you just give up because he's like, I just have to be with you. 
But you know that's what the presence of God is like. There's a famous poem uh, about the presence of God called The Hound of Heaven. And this picture is we're trying to run away and he's following after and following after and following after. And you can't outrun him. And in the end, he catches up with you and brings his presence to you and brings his love to you. And um, uh, this is exactly what happens at the end of the story. God will be with his people. And verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And um, he'll wipe every tear from their eyes. That's all kinds of tears, all manner of tears. Uh, The word in the Greek is pan. So it's like, you know, pan-African congress is all the different African countries. So this is like all the different kinds of tears. Uh, He will wipe from their eyes. And all the things that will not remain death and mourning and crying and pain. And, you know, death has been an ever-present character in the story all the way through the human journey. In every photo of humanity, that you can see death lurking quietly in the corner. Sometimes you see death very present, as we're seeing in Gaza at the moment, rampant, unchained. But death has always been present in every moment of our story, but there will be a day when death is no longer there. Yeah. In this moment, you look around, where is death? We're so used to death being here. No, no death, no death. And he says no more pain. And remember, for John, crying and pain, it's very personal. That's his world. His skin, you know, he's been boiled in oil. His skin, he lives with constant pain. And he's seeing there will be no more pain. And for some of you, brothers and sisters, you live with chronic pain. You live with pain in your bodies or in your mental, or in your emotional state. And you just, the pain is part, it's a constant companion. You need to know that one day it won't be. One day it won't be, just a little longer, okay? Just a little longer. And there'll be pain-free life. And then verse 5. And the one who was seated on the throne, said, see, I'm making all things new. And he said, write this for these words are trustworthy and true. And you know, all the way through the book of Revelation, we we haven't heard the voice of the one seated on the throne. We've heard angels, we've heard prophets, we've had visions, we've had voices and trumpets. There was one moment, just right at the beginning in verse 8 of chapter 1, when God himself spoke. But then here, right at the end, when everything's made new, it's no longer going to be angels and prophets and visions and partial things and feelings and senses. It's going to be the voice of him himself. The one seated on the throne. God himself will, will hear him. And, um, and he says, see, I'm making all things new. I'm doing it. I'm making all things new. And he said, write this because these words are trustworthy and true. And trustworthy is a lovely word. You can trust these things. They're reliable. You can depend on them. You can build your life on them. You can orientate your life towards these things because they're not going anywhere. They're trustworthy. As you sail your ship across the ocean of life and you don't know how to navigate it, there on the horizon, there is a fixed reality towards which you can navigate. And that is the reality 
of this new life. And if you put your, you, you, Christians are people with sore necks. I don't know if you've ever noticed, because we're always trying to look down at how we're walking, but then trying to look up at God and trying to look down at how we're trying to look up. And we've got sore necks because we live in between earth and heaven. But what he's saying is, if you focus on this distant truth, on this point, then you can walk towards it your whole life. And you, 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 you will stumble and fall and get dirty and get up and keep going. And there's even going to be at some point for each one of us the, the ditch of death that we'll fall into. But don't worry, you'll come out of it and you'll keep walking on, right? And we're walking towards that, this uh, eternal, trustworthy and true reality. We can build your life on it. It's the most reliable thing you will ever hear. These words are trustworthy and true. And then our final verse, verse 6. And then he said to me, Sister, you can see John's emotion like the one on the throne after all this time. He said to me, It is done. It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. So Jesus announced at the cross, it is finished. But here God announces at the end from the throne, it is done. And um, we see, he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Now these are the first and the last letters of their alphabet. So for us it would be like saying, I am the A to Z. Right, or I am the A and the Z, and everything in between. And, and we, we brought you an Alpha and Omega today just so that you can see them. So this is Alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, the beginning of everything. And when they were trying to decide what shape to make letters, you know, they started from somewhere. And so with Alpha, they started with, we're going to start from a, point, a, a single point of origin, and then everything is going to spread out from there. Because Alpha, the beginning, that's what happened. Creation, there was nothing, if you like, there was nothing. Eternity passed. And then God spoke. It's a bit like a megaphone in Alpha. God spoke. And there's a single point of beginning. When time began, when everything began, and created the heavens and the earth. And then from this single point of origin, everything spread out through history, through time, everything that we know, everything that we see, everything we've experienced. Alpha was the first word spoken, and after that came a billion words. And so you've got this moment of beginning with Alpha, and then this world that just carries on from there. But then you've got Omega, the end. And this is the Greek letter Omega. This is the end of the alphabet. Um, and it's better than a Z in so many ways, and I'm going to show you why. Um, because an omega, it's, it's, it's not a sharp end like an alpha was at a beginning. It's rounded, it's, a com it's complete, it's the tying together everything. It's like a knot that ties together all the threads of history. It's like when you've wrapped up a parcel and then you put the flourish, the bow on the end. The this is the flourish at the end of all time. Um, so Jesus Christ is the Alpha, the beginning of everything, the first word spoken. And Jesus Christ is the Omega, the end of everything. 
the wrapping up of everything. Um, he's the one in whom all stories are brought to their kind of rounded conclusion. He's the full stop at the end of history. Uh, the timeline ends beyond Omega. There's the beginning of this whole new thing, but time ends here. Uh, it's like the summing up of an argument in court where they've been arguing for weeks and then someone stands up and rounds off. This is what we've seen. This is what we've learned. It's like coming home after a long journey. It's like coming home after you've been in prison or away at war for a long time, coming home to your family, that sense of arriving. It's like the solution of a long and complicated maths equation. <laughs> um, it's, it's like the happily ever after at the end of any story. That's Omega, right? If you like, you've got history, and then you've got the little detour that was us and what we saw in our few thousand years here and the pain and the mess, but then you've got the carrying on of eternity afterwards. But it's different now because God is with us now forever. Omega's like the empty tomb with the stone rolled away. It's, um, it's the portal into whatever is next. So it's an ending, but it's also a beginning, you see? That's Omega. And so God is not merely at the end of all things. He is the end of all things. Just as he wasn't merely at the beginning of all things, he is the beginning of all things. And then the final thing that he says here is, to those that are thirsty, I will give freely without charge to drink from the water of life. And the story of thirst has been our story since Eden. In Eden, we had streams of living water. We had satisfaction. We had this access to the water of life. And ever since then, we've been thirsty. You know, thirsty for love, thirsty for meaning, thirsty for friendship, thirsty for healing. We've just had this thirst. You know, the world is like a desert. Sometimes we drink stuff we think is going to satisfy. It just leaves a bad taste in our mouth. We've just been thirsty, thirsty, thirsty. When Jesus came, he talked to people all the time. He kept trying to give people drinks, Jesus. He's like, here's some wine at a wedding. Um, you know, I'll give you living water. Jesus came, he was like the barman of the world. Please, you all look thirsty. Please, someone drink something. That's Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit is given as this living water, as this taste of heaven. It comes from heaven. It's this little taste, the Holy Spirit. But even so, we're not quite satisfied. We're still thirsty. And then at the end, it says, now you've got access to the source, to the spring, to that, the very pure place from which the river of life flows. Now you can come and drink. And he says, without cost, freely. Hallelujah. And so, um, just to conclude, really, what can we know about heaven? And perhaps the musicians could come and perhaps someone could take these things away. But just what have we, what have we seen today? What, what can we understand about heaven? Uh, Matthew Henry said this, he whose head is in heaven uh, will not fear to put his foot in the grave. He whose head is in heaven will not fear to put his foot in the grave. So heaven is this trustworthy place that we know is coming. Heaven is the end of the story of the presence of God, that which we've only ever known partially and temporarily, we will one day know fully and forever. 
This end is not something that we can achieve or build or attain. It comes down in God's sovereign time out of heaven and is given to us as a gift. And in heaven, there'll be no more sea, meaning no more evil, no more monsters, no more enemies, no more separation, no more fear. Heaven is not about us going up to God. It's about God coming down to us and to dwell with us, to be with us. It's the end of the story of God chasing us when he finally catches us. Hallelujah. Um, Heaven will be a society, a a kingdom, a city, uh, with all the holiness and beauty of human interaction and none of the systemic evil and inequality and injustice. It will be systemically holy and glorious and beautiful. It will be uh, like a wedding, like a bride. Who will be part of this new world? Well, everyone who's put their hope in the name of Jesus from every generation and around the world, stretching back through history, a great multitude that no one can count. Uh, Billy Joel said this, uh, if I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. Firstly, to meet some people I really didn't expect to see there. Oh, wow, you're here. Wow. Secondly, to not see people I really did expect to be there. And thirdly, he said, to find myself there. The biggest wonder of them all. Wow, I'm here. And Desmond Tutu said it slightly differently. He said, we will be surprised at the people we find in heaven. God has a soft spot for sinners. Hallelujah. Right. And so heaven is the omega. It's the tying off of all things, the end of the journey, the portal of eternity, the the womb of a new history that will dawn, uh, the tomb with the stone rolled away where life is just coming out. It will be the end of all things, but also the beginning of something new. Amen. Let's stand and we're going to sing together.